Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Donald Trump says he would absolutely testify in his own defense. What could go wrong? The lead starts right now. Trump on trial, cameras in the courtroom, a first real look at the case in Fulton County, Georgia, and the charges of conspiracy to overthrow that state's 16 electoral votes as two defendants get some bad news from the judge. And in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case against the former president, a new cooperation deal between the special counsel Jack Smith and the IT worker known as Trump employee Number four, what might this mean for the prosecution's case? Plus, a manhunt expands in Pennsylvania for a convicted brutal killer. Two entire school districts in the Commonwealth have canceled classes as incredible new video is released showing just how that inmate escaped. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Donald Trump on trial moments ago. A critical hearing just wrapped in the Fulton County, Georgia election subversion case against Mr. Trump and his 18 co-defendants. Cameras were allowed in the courtroom, a first in any case against the former president. One of the biggest topics discussed in the hearing, whether the 19 defendants in the case will be tried together or separately and when those trials might be held. The judge ruled from the bench that pro-Trump lawyer Kenneth Chesborough from Wisconsin and former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell will go to trial together on October 23rd. But the judge has not yet decided whether the other 17 co-defendants will be tried together or when their trial will take place. Keep in mind, this is just the Georgia case. There are three other criminal cases against Mr. Trump that also will be taking up time in his calendar. And as we came on air today, some breaking news about President Biden's son, Hunter, a brand new court filing from the special counsel investigating Hunter Biden. David Weiss said in that filing he intends to indict the president's son on federal gun charges by the end of the month. That reporting is just coming in. We'll have more for you there in just a moment. Our coverage is going to start with CNN's Evan Perez. Evan, in terms of the schedule in that Georgia case against Donald Trump and the other 18 defendants, Prosecutors today laid out their ideal timeline. What was it and and how did the judge respond to it? Well, it's an aggressive timeline, Jake. They're talking about going to trial for all 19 defendants, and they're talking about going to trial in October. They said that this is going to be a four-month trial. They're talking about 150 witnesses, potentially, that they would have to put on. The judge immediately seemed to throw a little bit of cold water on this, saying that it just seemed, at least he seemed very skeptical, that this is something that they could pull off. There's a number of reasons why. Of course, one of them is the fact that Mark Meadows, one of the key defendants in this case, is asking for his case to be moved to federal court. And that 
that motion that he is making, that request, is still pending. A federal judge is still considering that, and, and that has a lot of, a, a lot of uh, potential implications for everyone else, because if he moves uh, Meadows' case to federal court, it is possible that it might have to move all 19 defendants. That's something that is obviously something that is pending. So the judge really uh, had some skepticism about that. But he also threw cold water on the idea that, uh, that Powell and Chesbro get to just sever their cases, remove and separate themselves from the other defendants. Uh, the, the argument that both of them are making is that, well, you know, we weren't part of all parts of this conspiracy, so therefore uh, I shouldn't, we shouldn't have to be uh, tried together. And the judge said, well, that's not how the law works. Georgia RICO law, racketeering law, requires that all of the defendants who were part of this conspiracy, even if they weren't part of all of it, get to be tried, have to be tried together. And so that's part of the function of Georgia law. And so the, the judge really uh, dismissed that request. Uh, it was a very quick decision for the judge, uh, Jake. One of the things that we had heard about this judge was that he makes decisions very quickly. And you saw that, of course, before the cameras in state court, something that, of course, if, it, if this case moves uh, to federal court, we are unlike we're not going to be seeing. But again, for, for the purposes of, of today, what this does is it gives a lot of incentive to some of these other defendants. You saw it already. A few of them, I believe four of them now, have made similar requests to sever their cases, to separate themselves, because they don't want to be tried uh, as part of, uh, with, with the former president uh, or with other defendants. So Sidney Powell's lawyer today argued that she was not actually the driving force behind the breach of voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia. So if she wasn't the, the driving force behind it, who, who are they suggesting is? Well, part of the, what they're saying is that she really, uh, you know, they're disputing what the, what the prosecutors in Georgia are saying. And they've produced, of course, uh, the prosecutors have produced evidence that they say shows that her, uh, her legal organization was really the driving force. They hired consultants uh, to try to get access to voting machines in, in Georgia. Of course, CNN's reporting from our Zachary Cohen has shown that this was a, a, a something that went beyond just Michigan. Again, it went to Coffee County. It went to other parts in other in other states as well. And so, what she is saying is that you can't put this all on her. Of course, we know Jake from some of our own reporting that all of this, of course, ties back to the former president and at the White House. We know that back in December, this issue, this idea of getting access to voting machines came up at that one meeting in December where uh, Sidney Powell was present and where everyone was talking about getting access to voting machines. All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's uh, talk about this more with CNN's Ellie Honig and Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Ellie, uh, you, th you think that today's hearing was a, was a bad day for the prosecutors, a bad day uh, for District Attorney uh, Fannie Willis's office. Why? Yeah, on balance. The, the good news for Fannie Willis is she won the motion to keep Chesbro and Sidney Powell together. So that will be one trial of the two of them. She doesn't have to try each of them separately. The bad news is she lost the trial date on the other 17, all but lost. The judge said, I'm, quote, very skeptical of your ability to try all 19 at once. He said, I'll give you a couple days to brief it. But he all but signaled that he's not going to keep all 19 defendants together. The other thing is, I think there's a bit of hypocrisy that's being exposed now from the DA's office because the public rhetoric is, we're ready. We want everyone. We're ready to go right now. But here's the reality. Fonnie Willis took two and a half plus years 
to indict this case. She indicts it in August. Then she says, I want a trial of everybody two months from now. I take two and a half years to investigate. They get a trial in two months. And then she says, well, I'm not ready to produce discovery until September 15th. That's half that time. She should have been ready to produce discovery on day one. And then today when the judge says, how long do you need to brief this issue about keeping defendants together? Her lawyers say, we need two weeks. That's a, a quarter of the remaining time. So the talk here is we're ready, 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 but their actions are, are not consistent with that. And Karen, does it surprise you that the judge would not separate uh, Chesbro's case from Powell's? No, it doesn't at all. I mean, this is a RICO conspiracy case, and really the charges and the acts and the events are applicable to everybody. It's a whole story, and different pieces of the story belong together. This was a, an enterprise, a group that worked together to try and illegally overturn the Georgia election that went for Biden to Trump. And so that's a whole story that belongs together and should stay together. So there really isn't any reason to separate the two, uh, Chesbro and Sidney Powell here. So, Ali, as you noted, the judge seems skeptical that the trial could be held for all 19 de- defendants together in October. Yeah. Um, and for those that don't know, uh, in Georgia, you have a right to a speedy trial. You have a, the rocket docket idea, which some states have and some states don't. In Georgia, you have a right to a speedy trial. So, so Chesbro and Powell are like, we want to be tried now. And they're exercising that right. And Fannie Willis is like, well, we could do all 19 right now. You don't think so, though. The judge doesn't think so. Right. Is Fannie Willis not ready for this case? Well, she's, she's certainly not ready to try 19 defendants in October. And the reason that's not going to happen, part of it is legal. Like you say, a defendant has a right under Georgia, a very strong right to say, I want my speedy trial. You get it within essentially what amounts to two months from now. But you can't force the others into doing that, too. Also, there was an interesting, I think, unexpected wrinkle that caught the DA's office flat-footed today. The judge said, well, hang on, one of the other defendants in this case, Mark Meadows, he's trying to get into federal court. That's pending right now with the federal district judge. And the judge today said, no matter how that comes out, that's going to be appealed. That could take up to six months. And the DA said, right. And the judge said, so aren't we sort of, aren't our hands tied until then? And the DA's office didn't have an answer. They said, uh, we're going to have to get back to you on that one, Judge. They weren't ready for that either. And, and Karen, prosecutors say the trial could take four months. Uh, the judge thinks it could take eight months. Who do you side with? I think it's probably closer to the eight months. I mean, think about how much goes into a trial. They, they said it excludes jury selection. And there's a jury selection case in a, re- a trial right going on right now in a RICO case in Georgia. They're still in jury selection, and that's eight months. So jury selection takes time. The other side that's an unknown is the defense case. Will the defense put on a case? And the more defendants that are going on trial, the more lawyers will cross-examine witnesses, the more openings, the more closing. It will extend the trial. So I think... I I think it's going to be closer to the eight months uh, for this particular trial than the four months. For the prosecutor sure. said something like a 150 witnesses yeah. or something like yeah. that. Ellie, this was the first televised hearing in a Trump case. We are expecting uh, that the case, the trial would be uh, televised as they do in Georgia. How does that impact the case? So first of all, I thought it was interesting. I don't know. Did you think it was interesting? Yeah, as a definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm glad people are interested in severance. I also thought it was high quality lawyering on both sides. Good arguments. And the judge seemed sober. Solid. Judge was in control. So the concerns about, oh, we're going to have a circus, I think we're undercut by today. One well, this inter- is not Edo part two. Right. No, no, no dancing Edos are going to come out of this. Um, one thing that I think is important, if there is a trial of the early group, Chesbro and Powell together, we will see that. And Donald Trump won't be a defendant at that table 
But you can bet he will be mentioned and implicated while that's going on. And, and Karen, special counsel Jack Smith in, his, in the election subversion case in the federal court said in the court filing that Trump had made, quote, daily extrajudicial statements that threatened to prejudice the jury pool. Um, do you think that that's accurate, that his social media statements are, are tainting possible jurors? I mean, it's hard to know because those those submissions are largely under seal. So we don't know exactly what he's referring to. But Donald Trump has recently created these short videos on his Truth Social account where he is on a daily basis talking about cases and the issues and what's going on in these four prosecutions. So I do think that there's a possibility and a risk that he could taint the jury pool for sure. All right. Thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. And then there's Donald Trump, who said today he would absolutely take the stand in one of his trials, given the 91 charges against him. Is that such a wise choice? I'm going to talk to one of his former lawyers, plus what Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said just moments ago about his future in the Senate after those recent bouts of freezing in front of cameras, plus incredible new video from inside a Pennsylvania prison showing just how that Ruthless, brutal inmate escaped, scaling a wall, what authorities are saying now, seven days into the manhunt. And we're back with more on our law and justice. Lee, Donald Trump wants to take the stand in his own defense. At least that's what he told Hugh Hewitt earlier today. Take a listen. So if you have to go to trial, will you testify in your own defense? Oh, yes, absolutely. You'll take the stand. That I I look forward to. Former Trump attorney Tim Parlatore joins me now. Tim, as Trump's former attorney, do you think him taking the stand at a trial would be a good idea? You know, personally, I don't like any of my clients taking the stand in a criminal case. Uh, It's not something they're required to do. And I have not generally had any clients take the stand unless they first undergo a very rigorous cross-examination by me and pass. And more times than not, when they're going through that process, they say, all right, Tim, stop, time out. I don't believe myself. I'm not testifying. So um, I, I can't say it being a good idea here either. I can't help but think about the, the last time he kind of testified in his own defense. It was uh, he, when he was deposed in the uh, E. Jean Carroll civil case. Right. Um, and it was a videotaped uh, deposition. And there was one moment where he confused the woman suing him with his second wife, Marla Maples. Um, and then uh, right. there was this moment when he was asked about that infamous quote about grabbing women by their genitals. Take a listen. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the well, that's what it's. If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately, or fortunately. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, it seems like putting him on the stand would be risky. It is, and that's kind of an illustration of of why it's an uncontrolled environment. You don't know necessarily what the client's going to say. You know, even a very well-practiced client uh, can can say things that they would regret after the fact. So um, you try to you try to remember a trial is a pre- presentation for the jury where you're going to try and control it as much as you can, and that's an uncontrollable risk. Yeah, and try to avoid it. To say the least, he's he's not the most disciplined on message individual I've ever met. Um, today on Mar-a-Lago, at, IT, at the same t- at the same yeah. time. 
Yeah. I'm Go sorry. Ahead. At the same time, constitutionally, a defendant has the right to do it. And even if the lawyer says this is the worst idea in the world, the the client can do it anyway. So, oh, yeah. Good choice. And it's televised, of course. Um, today, a Mar a Lago yeah. uh, IT <laughs> worker uh, struck a deal with uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith's office. The employee has agreed to testify in order to avoid prosecution. How nervous do you think this makes Donald Trump? And this is in the classified documents case. Um, and could we begin to see more people flip cooperating with prosecutors as these cases intensify? I mean, it is a common uh, theme in any one of these cases where you have somebody who's being threatened with prosecution and, you know, they see their co-workers being arrested and charged and told, hey, if you just come in and tell us the story that we want to hear, you can avoid being charged yourself. So, yeah, I do think that it's something to be concerned about uh, at the same time. Uh, you know, what's he going to say? Is it something that can be backed up? Is it something that can be cross-examined on? You know, I, I don't know that it's really going to really significantly change the case any more so than uh, than the surveillance video, I think, is the bigger hurdle that they would have to overcome. Well, I, I mean, I suppose it would just be more testimony if somebody if if there is testimony that Donald Trump instructed somebody to destroy right. evidence, that's obstruction of justice. Mm-hmm. Not that not that it was destroyed, but that if he told somebody to do it. And if this IT guy would testify that he was instructed to do it, that's evident, further evidence of obstruction of justice. Correct. It would be. Uh, And I don't know whether he's going to say that Donald Trump told them directly or whether it was told through an intermediary, which that would change the admissibility and a lot of issues with it. We're also getting new insight on a key piece of evidence in, in the in the classified documents case. ABC News reported that Trump's lawyer, Evan Corcoran, uh, recorded voice memos uh, that showed that he warned the, Donald Trump the FBI might raid Mar-a-Lago if he didn't comply with the Justice Department's subpoena to return the documents. Uh, another attorney later warned Corcoran if he pushed Trump too hard to comply, quote, he's going to go ballistic. Um, does this new reporting paint the president's mindset, uh, mindset, in your opinion, accurately that he would have gone ballistic if pushed to comply with the, the subpoena. And, and if you would, talk about the crime fraud exemption here uh, sure. when it comes to getting information that's, that normally uh, would have, be protected by attorney-client privilege. Sure. I, look, I've read all of these notes. Um, and you know, obviously, it's still under seal. It's not something I can you know, just release. But at the same time, you know, this article takes some of the highlights uh, out, of the, out of the notes and doesn't really, unfortunately, give the full context. Because the full context of this conversation largely is standard attorney-client discussions about when you receive a subpoena, what are the left and right limits? Sure, there's a lot of Trumpisms added in there. It's a little bit uh, more meandering at times. But at the same time, it is exactly what is classically attorney-client communications. I will say, you know, you asked me about the crime fraud exception. There is one piece of it that I would concede under the government's theory would be discoverable under the crime fraud exception. We didn't know this at the time because, you know, we litigated this motion where we weren't allowed to see their papers. And when they got up in court to speak, they told us we had to leave the room. So now that I see the indictment and I know their theory, I would say that the portion where he's talking about when he's going to come back, 
when he's going to do the search and where he's going to do the search, that portion would be discoverable under the crime fraud exception based on their theory that he had Walt move boxes the night before. So I think that that part would be discoverable. So not uh, the, the other part, part in I would the ABC say article. The, no, no, and not the part about that he would go ballistic because the actual context of that is not that Evan was warned um, that he would go ballistic, but rather that another lawyer was warned by a campaign lawyer. And the campaign lawyer said, oh, don't push him to comply with the subpoena because he'll go ballistic. So when the two criminal lawyers got together, they discussed what the campaign lawyer had said, and they said, okay, you know what? We're going to ask him anyway. They did, and Trump said, go, sure, do, go ahead and do the search. What was the other so point you were going to make? With the full context, is a very di- with the full context, is a bit different. Okay, there was another point you were going to make. I don't know if you remember what it was. Uh, probably not. <laughs> okay, Tim Parlatori, but, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. Then there's the special counsel investigating President Biden's son. Hunter Biden and a brand new court filing just in indicating that an indictment in that case is coming soon. Keep it here. More to come. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Breaking news now on Hunter Biden's continuing legal woes. An indictment is imminent. Let's get straight to CNN's Kara Scannell. Kara, what is the news? Yeah, so we got this new court filing from special counsel David Weiss's office, and they say they're going to seek an indictment related to Hunter Biden's purchase and possession of a gun by the end of this month. Now, you may remember he initially agreed to what's known as a pretrial diversion agreement, meaning that he would avoid prosecution for possessing a gun while a 
addicted to a controlled substance. That's a felony that carries a maximum of 10 years in prison. Now, we had a deal that this charge would go away if he abided by it over 24 months. Uh, that all seemingly fell apart when the tax agreement also fell apart. Because remember, he was going to plead guilty to tax misdemeanor charges. Now, the special counsel's office saying to the judge that they're going to move forward and seek an indictment related to the guns, uh, the gun possession, uh, by the end of this month. Now, it's not clear what exactly they will charge, but you know they were looking at possibly charging with false statements. They ultimately reached this deal related to the gun possession, uh, but that's something that they are now saying they're going to move forward with. And it's important to note that the statute of limitations on this gun possession would expire in October, so they need to move quickly anyway if they're going to bring a case related to that. Biden purchased this gun in Delaware. Uh, he had it for 11 days, and so that's the essence of what this charge is. Uh, now, Biden's team says, though, that they had a binding deal on this diversion agreement. They're still fighting that, telling the judge that he's abiding by that to this day. Uh, so this is going to end up being a legal fight a- anyway. But it looks now, prosecutors saying they're going to seek an indictment on this gun issue by the end of this month. And those tax charges are still looming out there? Well, so those tax charges were dismissed. Uh, that was something that the prosecution and Biden's team agreed upon because the plea deal that they had reached had fallen apart and he ended up entering a plea of not guilty in that case. But the special counsel's office said they wanted to dismiss so they could seek it in another jurisdiction because Biden's tax issues did not reside in Delaware, where this issue was before the judge. D.C. and L.A., right? D.C. and L.A. So the prosecutor said they want the chance to bring these charges. And again, those were misdemeanors. It's possible they could look at felonies now. Uh, But bring whatever they might want to charge related to taxes in the jurisdictions where the alleged crime took place. All right, Kara Scannell, thank you so much. And our politics lead, the U.S. Senate will move forward on three spending bills next week. And that will leave House Speaker Kevin McCarthy Caught between a rock and a hard right Republican blockade of sorts, Congress still needs to pass a short-term government spending bill to avoid an October 1st government shutdown. That's exactly what Speaker McCarthy is urging his members to do, a short-term spending bill. But members of the more conservative caucuses are ready to go to battle over lower spending right now. So if McCarthy overrides them, they are some of them threatening to oust him from the speakership. With us now, Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado. He's a member of both the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the House Freedom Caucus. He's pushing for pre-2019 spending levels, and he's leading the charge against McCarthy's effort to cut a deal with Democrats. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. So Speaker McCarthy warns uh, that this infighting among Republicans is going to likely backfire and ultimately... Congress is going to end up with higher spending levels um, because you are opposed by not just Democrats and some Republicans in the House, but by the U.S. Senate, most in in the U.S. Senate, because there's bipartisan agreement on spending there. You could just pass the short-term spending bill right now and save your your big spending fight for later this year. Why not do that? Well, the the spending bill that the the speaker is talking about passing the continuing resolution um, in in the next few weeks so that the government stays open after September 30th would be at the 2023 number. Um, The speaker has promised that he won't go above the 2022 number. um, And there are many of us that want to see a number even uh, lower than that as a result of this uh, burgeoning uh, national debt that, that we have. So most Republicans voted against the 2023 number in the last uh, Congress. I can't imagine that most of them are going to want to vote for a continuing resolution of a number that they voted against. So it puts the speaker, um, as you said, between a rock and a hard place. 
Have you tried to meet with, say, a Senate Democrat to try? I mean, you know, everybody can look at the math and see that we as a country have been for too many years under Democrat and Republican administrations spending more money than we take in. I mean, it's just right there on the page. Have you tried to talk to anybody in the Senate who is of the other party to say, is there any way we can at least get on some sort of sustainable path? Um, I have had conversations with Democrats in the House. I'm not going to go through names or, or the negotiations, but I have talked to people in the House um, and other Republicans. Um, I think this is really where the Speaker's leadership comes into play. Uh, he needs to present a case uh, for how much wasteful spending there is in the federal government, as well as a path forward. Um, I have suggested to the Speaker that every committee, the Judiciary Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee, Education Committee, all have a subcommittee that is dedicated to finding waste and cutting it out of the authorization so that the Appropriations Committee doesn't appropriate money uh, to those programs. Um, that, that is not uh, being followed. Uh, there are a lot of suggestions from a lot of people on how, on strategies that we can use to reduce spending. Uh, they've largely been ignored and we end up with this crisis. I'm sure there's plenty of waste, fraud and abuse, as they say. But isn't that kind of just a campaign slogan? Like the the real problem here is that we're spending money on things that we can't afford. And a lot of them are are good programs. It's just that we can't afford uh, uh, those programs, you know, at the rate of the money that is coming in. Um, Isn't isn't that the real issue that this is going to take some really difficult decisions it absolutely is, uh, Jake, and, and that's really the problem with Congress. Congress doesn't make difficult decisions unless there's a crisis. And the, the most difficult decision are the entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. What we need to do is to make sure that the younger uh, workers, the 25, 26, 30-year-old workers, uh, are going to see a retirement age further down the road. There are other strategies that have to be adopted but that is the real driver of, of the debt. I don't think you can get to that side of the equation before you, you cut every single penny that you can on the discretionary side, on the, on the programs that form the, the bulk of the government. Uh, I wanted to get your uh, take uh, on your colleague, Congressman Matt Gates, saying he is prepared uh, to um, force a floor vote on impeaching President Biden and... If Speaker McCarthy blocks the effort, he is threatening to make a motion to oust Speaker McCarthy. What do you think of that? Well, I think I think Speaker McCarthy has said a number of uh, times that he wants to bring a vote on the impeachment inquiry, not necessarily the impeachment, but the impeachment inquiry. Uh, so I think he and, and Congressman Gates are on the same page there. I don't think that there is a, an appetite right now for a motion to vacate uh, Speaker McCarthy. I think that uh, we have three committees that are working very hard on uncovering evidence of Hunter Biden's wrongdoing. Uh, they are looking to see if there is a connection with Joe Biden. If they reach that point where they can find evidence of a connection, uh, fine. I think the Republicans will move forward with an impeachment inquiry. Right now, I'm not convinced that that evidence exists and I'm not supporting an impeachment inquiry. All right. Republican Congressman Ken Buck of the great state of Colorado. Good to see you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Coming up next, the new video just out showing that inmate who escaped a Pennsylvania prison climbing a wall to make his big getaway. In our National League, just a short while ago, uh, police in Pennsylvania released this video of Danilo Cavalcante climbing his way 
out of the Chester County Prison just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Two entire school districts still are closed as this manhunt for this escaped killer enters its seventh day. Joining us now to discuss CNN's Josh Campbell and Brian Todd, who is outside the prison in Westchester where the inmate escaped. Brian, this video of this inmate basically scaling the wall without getting caught, it's pretty shocking. What else did police have to say about his escape today? Jake, that video, dramatic, extraordinary. We can get right back to it if you can replay that video. Just released a short time ago by law enforcement at this briefing showing Danilo Cavalcante the moment of his escape on last Thursday, August 31st. This is in the exercise yard at the Chester County Prison. He's crab walking up between two walls. And if you see that, it still just looks extraordinary, his his deafness in getting up that wall. According to uh, the acting prison warden, Howard Holland, he pushed his way up the wall, then pushed his way through razor wire, then ran across a roof of the prison, scaled another fence, pushed his way through more razor wire, then got away. Another important piece of information, there was a tower security guard present, but that guard did not observe this happening and did not report it. He was not reported missing until almost an hour later when they did a head count. That guard is now on administrative leave. Danilo Cavalcante is described as five feet tall, 120 pounds. And again, if you see this video, we did ask them about certain details of kind of that that hallway type opening there that you see where he's wedging himself between the two walls, how wide it is. Um, one of the officials said maybe five feet, maybe maybe less than five feet. So if that is the case, he's wedging himself between two walls that are about the length of his body, maybe a little bit shorter, Jake. Again, just extraordinary. One other quick piece of information. They had another sighting of him last night. A resident observed him in a creek bed on their property. By the time law enforcement got there, he had vanished. Jake. Josh, you've had previous experience with uh, working in manhunts. What kind of challenges are police facing as they try to capture this fugitive? Well, these are resource-intensive efforts. You have hundreds of law enforcement officers who are searching for someone who doesn't want to be found in an area where there is plenty of opportunity for him to secrete himself into hiding places. Now, I've been part of these manhunts where you have command posts that are operational. Just to tell you about the work that's going on behind the scenes, you have intel teams that are working together, joint interagency efforts, fielding tips, fielding leads. They also typically have behavioral uh, analysts who try to study the suspect, his support structure, to try to predict where he might go. Finally, it's important to note that law enforcement certainly understands the strain that a manhunt like this puts on the community. You have people, obviously, that are gripped by fear with this dangerous person that that is out there, but they sometimes take time. I mean, one manhunt that I worked in Pennsylvania took 48 days for us to finally find that suspect who was hiding out in the woods, and so that certainly takes time, but authorities are trying to remind the public this is a dangerous suspect. We know he's dangerous because Pennsylvania State Police have issued a directive saying that authorities can shoot this suspect on site, Jake, if he is not actively surrendering. All right, Brian Todd and Josh Campbell, thanks to you. Coming up next, among the 91 charges against Donald Trump, why seditious conspiracy is not on the list, despite the claims about January 6th that prosecutors have already laid out. In our Law and Justice lead, the top leaders of two far-right groups that helped orchestrate the January 6th insurrection Each got lengthy prison sentences for the charge of seditious conspiracy. In May, Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes was sentenced to 18 years. He claimed he was waiting for Donald Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act, which never happened. And just yesterday, former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio 
was sentenced to 22 years, the longest sentence for anyone involving the Capitol attack. Notario's lawyers called their client a scapegoat for Mr. Trump. Prosecutors said the Proud Boys saw themselves as Donald Trump's army, that they were riled up by the president's stand back and stand by comment in that 2020 debate. We should note Donald Trump is facing four counts in the federal indictment related to trying to overturn the 2020 election. Two of them are directly related to obstructing and conspiring to obstruct the vote certification proceedings at the Capitol that day. But Donald Trump has not himself been charged with seditious conspiracy. Why not? Let's bring back former assistant U.S. attorney Ellie Honig, along with CNN's Ellie Reeve. Ellie Honig, let me start with you. Okay, so the indictment says on the morning of January 6th, Mr. Trump and co-conspirators repeatedly knowingly false claims, repeated knowingly false claims of election fraud to gather supporters, falsely told them the vice president had the authority to alter the election results, directed them to the Capitol to obstruct the certification proceeding. The indictment adds, as violence ensued, the Trump and co-conspirators exploited the disruption by redoubling efforts to levy false claims of election fraud and convince members of Congress to further delay the certification based on those claims. But Trump is not facing seditious conspiracy charges. Why not? So it's a fair question. I think if Jack Smith were to answer that question, he would say the difference between the obstruction charge that they did file against Trump and the seditious conspiracy charge, which they did not file against Trump, but did file against the Proud Boys, is the use of force. If you look at the law, that's what makes a difference. In Enrique Tarrio's case... Yeah, he wasn't even there. He right. was in jail, right? right? Exactly. But he was directly involved in planning to use force, discussions about ammunition, how are we going to sort of infiltrate the Capitol. And Donald Trump, yes, he directs the mob down to the Capitol, but he also says, and maybe he didn't really mean this, but he says be peaceful and patriotic. And I think Jack Smith would say, I stayed with the simpler charge to prove with the cleaner charge. Ellie Reeve, what is the current state of the Proud Boys now that their former leader and other top members are facing serious jail time? So there's no more big national rallies. Instead, you mostly see small groups protesting drag queens. Um, It's a big shift from fighting Antifa and looks kind of like a bit to stay relevant. There's also a lot of infighting over whether to allow in white nationalist members. So one proud boy called me in great distress because he discovered members of his group had white supremacist tattoos. But the bigger cultural picture is that proud boys pitched themselves as a fun drinking club where everything was just a joke. And these sentences are not a joke, and that really kills the appeal. Hmm. If Trump were facing seditious conspiracy charges, do you think that would deter these far-right groups or people who follow Trump from repeating a January 6th kind of insurrection? Do you think it matters? Uh, I actually think it matters in the opposite way. Because before January 6th, a lot of these far-right groups thought Trump had their back. And among those I've interviewed, that evaporated because he did not pardon the Jan 6 rioters. So they say anyone who shows up and protests for him now is a sucker. You saw this in court with one of the Proud Boys saying he was done, quote, peddling lies for other people who don't care about me. So he could have, the Donald Trump, could Donald Trump have preemptively on his way out the door, pardoned anyone involved in January 6th? Yeah, you you can pardon, a president can pardon someone for anything in the past. You can't say I pardon you for something you might do in the future, but sure, January 8th, 11th, 12th, 19th, he could have said, I pardon everyone with anything to do with January 6th, and as Ellie said, he did not. And one of the reasons prosecutors are doing this, and and especially asking for these lengthy prison sentences, and they're not asking for longer sentences than they're getting, even though they're getting lengthy sentences, is to deter any future insurrections. Do, Do you think... 
that, that these groups are getting the message? I do think so. And I think Ellie's reporting is consistent with that. I mean, I give DOJ real credit here. They, they did an exceptional job in the way they prosecuted the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. 18 years, 22 years. Judges, I think, hit the nail on the head. I think it's hard to overlook that. You can't write that off as just, oh, it's 18 months, it's two years. I think if you're thinking about doing anything like this, that's a clear message. Do you think so? That, yeah. it, that it's the t- deterrence for any future insurrection? Absolutely. You saw them say in court, I mean, this group was all about projecting masculine strength. And what are they saying in court? They're like, please let me have a chance to build a family. Were you surprised at how many of them started crying in court? No. <laughs> no, they wore military outfits, but they weren't military guys for the most part somewhere. You know, they want to project be tough, but they other members have told me that they needed a crew to have their back to actually say what they believed. It wasn't so proud. No, no, not when they're on their own. They were boys, though. Not so proud. (laughs) All right. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. The lead prosecutor in Fulton County believes she can bring her case against Trump and 18 defendants by October 23rd. That's in six and a half weeks. Hear what the judge had to say about that. Call it ambitious plan. Next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new attention on the race for 2024 in the Senate. One of the so-called Tennessee Three, the Democrats reprimanded for their protest in the State House. Gloria Johnson wants to face off against a powerhouse Republican. Ms. Johnson will be here this hour to talk about why she's taken on this tough race. As another new candidate, a Republican quite familiar to CNN viewers, launches his own campaign in the battleground state of Michigan. Also this hour, the unannounced trip to Ukraine by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, what his visit may really say about the relative strength of Ukraine's counteroffensive and White House efforts to send Kyiv more money. And leading this hour, the Fulton County case into the alleged conspiracy to steal Georgia's 16 electoral votes. Today, the judge in that case shut down two defendants who wanted their case separated from 19 co-defendants, including Donald Trump. It was the first televised hearing in the case. Let's go to CNN's Evan Pettis. Evan, we just watched the pilot episode in this televised trial against Donald Trump, the judge addressing questions about the trial start. When can we expect to see any sort of schedule? When when are we going to see Donald Trump in the courtroom? Well, it may be some time before we, we can see the former president in, in a courtroom uh, on trial, Jake. The judge really raising some questions about what prosecutors are trying to do. Uh, they laid out a timeline. They say they can try to go to trial in October. And they say it's going to be a four-month trial with about 150 witnesses. The judge immediately showing some skepticism about that plan because he said, you know, there's a lot of litigation between now and then that could make that impossible. Of course, the reference there is the fact that Mark Meadows, uh, one of the uh, 19 people who was indicted in this uh, racketeering case, is trying to remove his case. He wants to move his case out of state court into federal court. And that decision is pending by a federal judge. And what that judge rules 
could have a lot of implications, not only on the former president, of course, but also on other defendants. Here's the judge laying out his uh, views of what this, uh, what, what, what this schedule and the difficulties of that schedule are. To kind of charge ahead without coming to uh, some thoughts on this very soon uh, might be risky. It's, it just seems a bit unrealistic to think that we can handle all 19 and 40-something days. And of, and of course, uh, Jake, the, he's not alone in, in just raising the logistical nightmare that 19 people, putting 19 people on trial would be. Uh, and of course, as you pointed out, he also said that the, the way Georgia's racketeering law works, uh, these two defendants, Chesbro and Powell, they don't just get to separate themselves because they want to. That's not how the law works there. And the judge ruled that uh, those two defendants, Trump lawyer Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro, will, will be tried together on October 23rd, denying Chesbro's motion to sever his case from Powell's. What's behind that decision? Well, the judge says that the, that the way the Georgia law works, uh, all, all the defendants uh, who are accused of being part of the racketeering, a, a part of the conspiracy, they have to be tried together because that's the way the law is designed. And, you know, almost uh, the way he, 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 he structured his ruling there, it gives a lot of incentive for some of the other uh, defendants to make their own motions. And you saw that happening today. You saw Mark Meadows asking uh, the judge to, to, to freeze this case while he tries to figure out what happens with his case. And then, of course, a couple of other defendants also made their own motions, Jake, to try to sever their cases, to try to separate themselves. Again, the idea being people are trying to figure out whether they want to go on trial, perhaps with Sidney Powell and, and, and Kenneth Chesbrough, or wait and, and try to go on trial with Donald Trump at some point. And to complicate matters even more, former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, he still is waiting to hear whether a district judge is going to grant his move to have his case go from Georgia to federal court. When are we going to hear about that decision? That decision could come at any moment. And the judge there uh, really has been ha has a, a lot of a lot of things that are riding on that decision. Uh, one of the things that could happen, Jake, is that if he rules that Meadows' case has to be moved to federal court, that could mean that all of the defendants uh, get to move their case to federal court. They all move together as one case. Now, the other issue is that you have a number of other defendants, Jeffrey Clark and others, who are also making the same request. They have hearings coming up uh, before the federal judge. So, Again, we don't know when he's going to rule, but there's a lot that is riding on whatever decision he makes. Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Let's talk about this all with former Nixon White House counsel John Dean. Uh, John, you know a little bit about millions of American households watching such a proceeding. The Watergate hearings, of course, were not uh, in a courtroom, but it was more than 50 days of broadcasts and an administration on trial. What are your first thoughts when you hear about this tele televised hearing? Um, do you think it's a service or a disservice uh, to the cause of justice? I think it's a service. I, I can tell you from personal experience, uh, having been in 85 million households for a week, uh, that suddenly people uh, understand things that they didn't begin to understand before. And that's what will happen as a result of this being televised. That's one of the real issues in whether or not this case is removed to federal court. 
it's not likely the federal courts will televise it. It would take an exception to the rule to do so. And while there are efforts to make that happen, I, I don't think it will. It, it's very difficult to get those rules changed. While prosecutors uh, for the district attorney, Fannie Willis, told the judge that the trial could take four months, the judge said today that he thought it could easily be eight months, um, given you know the 19 defendants. Do you think the American people will have the attention span for eight months, potentially 150 witnesses? What happened during Watergate and what's happened during the trials I've watched on television is interest waxes and wanes, and it depends a lot upon the witness, the issues, and they'll be in and out of the issues. There will be a few people, because I've talked to some over the years, who watch every single day, every single hour, and actually sometimes watch even replays. Uh, but by and large, the bulk of the public will be in and out of the proceedings, but they'll be there for them. And that's the important thing. And that's why I think they should be televised. I remember I was only five, but I remember my mom watching Watergate on the little black and white we had in our living room. Um, it was uh, one of my first memories. Um, District Attorney Willis also wants one massive trial for all 19 defendants, including Trump. Uh, she wants this on October 23rd, 19 defendants, uh, plus obviously their counsel. Just thinking about that um, sounds impossible and uh, rather circus-like. Jake, it's hard to imagine all 19 are going to go to trial. Uh, you know, they, they know the consequences. Uh, they are beginning to point fingers at uh, Trump and each other. Uh, this is not likely to to go in mass. Uh, some will flip. Some will uh, some will do deals. Some will uh, find other ways to get out of this situation. So I don't think all 19. I don't know how many will go. Uh, but I can understand why, as the prosecutor, there are certainly benefits to having all of them there. That happened in the Watergate trials that did happen when uh, the former chief of staff, Haldeman, the former top domestic advisor, Ehrlichman, uh, the former attorney general, all of the those involved in the Watergate cover-up were tried uh, together. Uh, I think there were seven of them in the courtroom. I, again, was a witness for two weeks in that proceeding. But, uh, you know, it, there's an advantage to the prosecutors having them there. And the most effective uh, witness, or excuse me, defendant, was one who sat in a corner with nobody else around and got uh, no judgment against them by the jury. The jury thought that person couldn't be involved. So there can be strategic locations even in mass trials like this. At one point during um, Watergate, you drew up a list of names of figures who, in your opinion, had broken the law. Uh, you remarked, quote, how in God's name could so many lawyers get involved in something like this? And I'm wondering... If you look at the list of uh, Georgia defendants, seven of the 19 defendants are attorneys, if, you, if you're wondering the same thing. I have been wondering the same thing, particularly since I've tried to use Watergate uh, in the last decade uh, as a teaching tool for what lawyers shouldn't do. Uh, and been out there and really thought maybe Watergate had had an impact. It certainly required ethics being taught in law schools, required a national ethics exam. But now we've got to examine again whether indeed that has worked or had an impact or why it is that some lawyers are inclined to so easily cross the line. John Dean, once again, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
How are today's significant developments playing out in Trump world? Let's bring in one of the people who knows that world uh, better than anyone, CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman, who, of course, is also a senior political correspondent for The New York Times, where she won at least one Pulitzer Prize that I'm aware of. One? One. One, okay. That's, that's, that's not bad. I, uh, You'll take I, it. I was happy with it. Yeah, okay. So um, l- let, me, let me start. Today was the first televised hearing in the Georgia case. Um, and I'm wondering, what's going on in the minds of Trump people right now? So the Georgia case is disturbing to them on a couple of levels. Number one is the scope, the, the, the sprawl of this. I don't think in Trump's mind this case bothers him on, on, in terms of the facts and the details. The prosecutor bothers him. He has been complaining about Fawnie Willis uh, for months and months and months and months, and I think that is only going to continue. Why? As, uh, well, because uh, women in power, among other things, tend to... Uh, upset him. People who he feels he's under attack from upset him. He has also attacked the male prosecutor, uh, the Manhattan District Attorney. Um, but he has been very focused on her in particular, and this case has gotten to him. Also, don't forget, there's a tape recording of him, or an audio recording of him, in this case too, actually. And that that tends to uh, upset him too when he's on tape. This is all taking place, though, Jake, with an overlap with so many other cases that it's almost impossible to pull them apart in Trump land at this point. They just feel under siege at all times. Yeah. Um, Speaking of audio recordings, take a listen to Donald Trump talking to Hugh Hewitt about testifying. So if you have to go to trial, will you testify in your own defense? Oh, yes, absolutely. You'll take the stand. That I I look forward to. So um, it's not a surprise that he would say that. Um, Also not a surprise. We had Mr. Parlatori on earlier who said he'd didn't think that was such a great idea for any defendant. Uh, and I think it was fair to say he, didn't, he agreed with my assessment that Mr. Trump is not the most disciplined uh, person that, who's ever taken a stand. Um, is there any chance uh, that he actually takes a stand? I suppose there's always a chance. But to your point, it's not exactly uh, the course that I think that his lawyers are likely to recommend. And Donald Trump's lawyers have been wrestling with him throughout not just this investigation, but the Mueller investigation when he was in the White House as well, when one of his first impulses was, I want to go meet with Robert Mueller because he believes that he can convince anyone of anything and that he can he can sell his case. Uh, and so I'm not surprised that he said that. But to your point, um, that we've already seen a divergence in what he's willing to say publicly and what his lawyers are. You know, once his lawyers probably told him, don't go on the CNN town hall and defame E. Jean Carroll again. Uh, but he did. I don't know if they put it in, in those terms, but I think certainly broadly his lawyers have tried to get him to pare back his statements on a range of things. Yeah, Eugene but Carroll a federal judge today ruled yes. that he's liable for making those yep. comments. A new CNN poll asked Republicans and Republican-leaning voters whether charges against Trump would disqualify him from the presidency or cast doubts on his fitness for the job. In both federal cases against him, the classified documents case and the 2020 election subversion case, 68 percent said not relevant to his fitness for the job. The results, pretty identical. What's the deal? Look, Republican voters uh, overwhelmingly, not entirely, but overwhelmingly, are behind Trump at the moment. This is a campaign that is just beginning. Uh, it, you know, you, you can argue this in two different ways. One is that he has a really unshakable bond with Republican voters, and the other is that Republican voters are not yet dialed in to this primary. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to think the former is more compelling, only because he's a former president. Uh, he is stronger now than he was in 2016. These cases in the mind of a number of Republican voters 
are not legitimate. And I think that they, a number of these voters would think that even if he wasn't saying it all the time. But the fact that he's saying it all the time is helping condition his supporters. All right. Maggie Haberman, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank for you. Always good to see you. Given all of Trump's legal troubles, his former vice president, Mike Pence, says Republicans need to make a choice. How is Pence framing the moment? That's next. Plus, a federal judge is ruling just in on those dangerous floating barriers blocking parts of the Rio Grande River between Mexico and Texas. And this just in, Tropical Storm Lee is now Hurricane Lee. The forecast track for this storm, which is forecast to grow even stronger, that's ahead. In our politics lead, Senate Minority Leader, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, met with his Republican conference today for the first time since his latest on-camera freezing episode. Listen to what McConnell told reporters just a bit ago. Yesterday, a Capitol physician released a later saying he saw no evidence that McConnell had had a stroke or had a seizure disorder. In our 2024 lead, Mike Pence today is taking on Donald Trump-style populism. CNN's Jessica Dean is here, fresh from the campaign trail, with the details on what the Pence campaign billed as a policy speech called Populism versus Conservatism, Republicans' Time for choosing. That's that's quite a foreboding title. It is a lengthy and foreboding title, yes. but it is, Jake, what we're seeing really play out in within that party and, and on the debate stage, on the campaign trail, and it is really this schism between populism and traditional Reagan-esque conservatism, and we heard the former vice president really in his sharpest, most direct way going at this today with, with that speech, and really distilling this down into a choice between those two things. He says that populism is an agenda stitched together by personal grievances and performative outrage and really making the case that if the party goes that way, that they risk losing in 2024 in a general election, uh, both at the top of the ballot and all the way down. But I'll let you listen to more of what he had to say. We've come to a Republican time for choosing. Will we embrace the traditional conservative agenda that's led our party and our nation to victory and prosperity? Now for more than half a century, or will we choose to go down the path of populism and decline? And he did call out some of his rivals by name, Trump, DeSantis, Ramaswamy, again, making the case that this is the time to choose. But, Jake, the question really is, is what do GOP voters want, right? Is this is this the way of the party today or is this the party uh, that existed years ago when Reagan was popular, when George Bush was popular? Uh, and that is the question uh, in a nutshell in front of a lot of these voters, which yeah. direction they want to go. Or is it even about policy at all versus, is it? Right. versus about candidates and personality? Right. There's also this move by a Washington-based, advocacy, Washington-based advocacy group suing to keep Trump off the 2024 Republican primary ballot in, in Colorado. What's that about? So this is based around the 14th Amendment, part of the 14th Amendment that bans insurrectionists from holding office. And there has been a mounting uh, swirl within the legal community about could this keep Trump off the ballot? This is the first major test of that question, legal test of this question. So this is in Colorado. Uh, it is by this watchdog group, and it's the first high-profile 
case to kind of try this theory out, essentially. Of course, Trump has said he's done nothing wrong, uh, and he says there's no legal basis to toss him off the ballot. We do know it's been applied exactly a couple of times, two times, I think, since the late 1800s when it was used against Confederate, former Confederate soldiers a lot. Ultimately, it sounds like uh, many legal scholars are expecting that the Supreme Court may have to weigh in on this down the road at, at some point. Mm. All right, Jessica Dean, thanks so much. This just in from Texas. A federal judge has ordered that state to remove floating barriers put up in the Rio Grande River. Those barriers are aimed at deterring migrants from using the river to cross from Mexico into the United States illegally. Today's ruling bars the state of Texas from placing additional buoys in the river. And this is a a victory for the Biden administration after they first sued the state of Texas in July. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has argued that the barriers are necessary because the Biden administration is simply not doing enough to stop illegal immigration. Coming up next, the significance of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's unannounced trip to Ukraine today and the all-in approach by the Biden administration. Stay with us. Our commitment. And topping our world lead, how is Ukraine's counteroffensive really going? It's nearly impossible to verify every Ukrainian or Russian claim about the incremental battlefield gains or losses, but it is certainly a question on the minds of U.S. lawmakers and the Biden administration as everyone squabbles over continued aid to the war-battered country. And it's clearly really on the minds of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, evident in his surprise trip to Kiev today. He talked diplomacy and shared McDonald's fries with his counterpart, and he met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as the U.S. and Ukraine attempt to align before the big U.N. conference later this month. Today's diplomatic mission was against the stark backdrop of war and the deadliest Russian attack on Ukraine in months. Ukrainian officials say a missile exploded at a market in the eastern Donetsk region of Ukraine. 17 people were killed, including a child. Let's get right to CNN's Kylie Atwood at the State Department and Kayla Toshi at the White House. Uh, Kylie, we know uh, Republican hardliners are a no on new aid to Ukraine for this upcoming uh, spending fight on the Hill. But Republican Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says now is not the time to go, quote, wobbly on aid. Um, How did Secretary Blinken explain this fracture to Zelensky today? Well, listen, the Secretary of State said that he is working with Congress on supplemental funding for Ukraine. He really didn't get into the fracture at all, not in terms of what he said publicly. Uh, We did hear from Zelensky, for his part, who uh, expressed his gratitude to Congress for the unity when it comes to continued support for Ukraine. But that doesn't mean that this fracture, even if it is a minority of Republicans, isn't going to create road bumps for this administration over the course of the next few weeks. Now, The secretary did focus in on the progress that Ukraine has made since he last visited the country. That was around this time last year. Listen to how he described that. In the years since I was last here, uh, Ukraine has taken back more than 50 percent of the territory that Russia uh, has seized from it since February of 2022. In the current counteroffensive, We are seeing real progress over the last few weeks. Uh, As it happens, President Zelensky just returned from the front line, so I was able to hear directly from him his assessment uh, of the counteroffensive. And I think it very much matches our own, which is, as I said, uh, real progress in, in recent weeks. 
Now, Jake, this is a shift in tone from what we have heard from U.S. officials about the counteroffensive largely over the last few months. They have said it hasn't gone as quickly as they have liked. Privately, they have been critical of the tactics that Ukrainians have used on the battlefield. But the secretary really striking a positive note here and saying that the new security assistance, the new military assistance that will be coming to the Ukrainians, he hopes, will continue to build the momentum of this counteroffensive. Kayla, is there a plan B from the Biden White House if Congress ultimately does not have the votes to increase aid to Ukraine? The short answer, Jake, at least today, is no. A senior Biden aide tells me that despite some of those public proclamations from Republicans, that the administration still remains committed to passing that supplemental package that includes aid for both Ukraine and domestic disasters together. Yesterday, I had an opportunity to ask the national security advisor a question directly about what assurances the White House has even gotten from Congress to sense that that's even possible. Here's what Sullivan said. We've been working with both the Senate and the House. We've had constructive conversations on a bipartisan basis in both chambers. We believe we will be able to secure the necessary funding as we go forward. I'm not going to speak to assurances per se, but the conversations have been constructive. They've been positive. They've been substantive. Uh, and, and we anticipate being able to work our way through to a sound package so that Ukraine can get what it needs. So at least publicly remaining extremely optimistic about the viability of that package. It's $24 billion for Ukraine through the end of the calendar year, Jake. All right, Kayla Tausche and Kylie Atwood, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. You're looking at a destroyed, donated British tank on Ukraine's southern front. This one apparently near uh, Robotina, the same southeastern village Ukraine says it recently liberated. But Russia says it went a little differently. They claim its troops, quote, tactically left that town, which now essentially no longer exists. CNN's international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson's with us. Nick, give us the real deal. What happened in Robotina and, and what does this example reveal uh, about the big picture of the counteroffensive and how it's really going? We both have to recognize, everyone has to recognize that both sides in the conflict are going to try to play up their gains and and minimize their losses. It's clear the Russians have had losses here. It was along their front line of defenses. They have been holding out against this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Ukrainians are describing the situation in Robotnia and just to the east of it in Verbove and even to the south in, in uh, about two and a half miles south of Robotnia, a town called Novo Prokivka. Um, they're saying that they're consolidating their gains there. Now, these are relatively small villages, but they're on small highways, and that's important. They're on the road to a place called Tomak. Um, that's the the sort of next big objective, if you will, for the Ukrainians as they push. So significant that the Ukrainians have taken that ground. So no surprise that we've heard from both uh, the Russian defense ministry, we've heard from the Russia's uh, um, imposed uh, official in the region, civilian official in the region there in Zaporizhia, and from uh, military war bloggers with the Russian forces, all saying, nah, Robotnia has gone differently. As you say there, the town is flattened. Uh, there's no tactical change is what the Russians are saying. All that's happened is the troops have now pulled back to a tree line. And indeed, they're saying there is no cover from artillery uh, in Robotnia. That was our problem. Now we've pulled out. Now it's a Ukrainian's problem. But and the reality some- is, yeah, I was right. just going to say, the reality is the Russians have had to pull out. They didn't ever want to do that. Right. And there's some cautious optimism 
that Russia's second lines of defense might be weaker than the first ones. And we've seen these pictures of Russia's intense dragon's tooth trenches in the south. What, what might await Ukrainian troops after those? Um, better days is what the commander of Southern Forces is saying um, and his deputy. They're saying, look, the, the minefields ahead of the first line of defense were really dense. It slowed us down. It channeled us into very narrow avenues of attack. It made us vulnerable. It made the attack slow. Uh, and we took heavy casualties. They were frank about that. But they say the second line of defense is the minefields are not as dense. They can attack, therefore, over a broader front more quickly. Um, and if they can force a big enough gap, this is the big if here, right? If they can force a big enough gap, then they get behind those first, second, third lines. And then they can outflank the Russians, who will then perhaps go into retreat. That would be their aim. All right, Nick Robertson, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Two big announcements in the race for 2024. The launch of two new campaigns for the U.S. Senate. One by a member of the so-called Tennessee Three, the Democrats who stayed that controversial protest at their state house. The uphill battle she's likely up against. That's ahead. In our 2024 lead, new developments that will make one of the many U.S. Senate races we're going to have next year a lot more interesting. In Tennessee, Democratic state legislator Gloria Johnson just announced a bid to unseat Republican incumbent Senator Republican Marsha Blackburn. Johnson is one of the so-called Tennessee Three, who faced expulsion from the State House of Representatives last spring, along with fellow Democratic representatives Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Johnson pushed for gun reforms following a mass shooting at a Nashville school. Republicans accused them of knowingly and intentionally bringing disorder and dishonor to the State House of Representatives during a protest inside that House chamber. Jones and Pearson, who are black, were expelled, but they were also eventually reappointed and reelected. Johnson, who is white, was not expelled, a decision that she categorized as racially motivated. And she joins us now for her first CNN interview as a candidate for the U.S. Senate. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us, Representative. Um, this does sound like a, a rather uphill battle. Uh, Trump won Tennessee by 33 points. In 2020, why are you running for the U.S. Senate? Well, you know, what we see here in Tennessee, there are more Democrats and independents than there are Republicans. And Tennesseans have had their eyes open to the extremism in our state. We see that Marsha Blackburn is voting against health care for veterans. She's voting against keeping drug prescription prices low for senior citizens. It's extreme and it's out of touch. And Tennessee families need someone who is working for them. We're building a broad coalition of Democrats, independents, and Republicans. I've outperformed the top of the ticket in my district uh, election cycle after election cycle. We're going to be able to do that. But, But we are really building. There's something happening on the ground in Tennessee. And it started when um, they did uh, expel two of our members and almost expel myself, people all over the state, all over the country started paying attention and they saw what was happening in the state house as the extremist Republicans were trying to silence not only their own members, but silence members in the galleries and committees and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And Tennesseans are set up. Marsha Blackburn, uh, as a senator, is, votes pretty consistently with how she voted as a member of the House. And she won decisively, decisively in 2018 
uh, by something like 10 or 11 points, even though she was running against a, a pretty popular Democratic governor, uh, Phil uh, Bredesen, and, and she, he even had the endorsement of Taylor Swift, Nashville royalty. Um, how are you <laughs> going to be able to do better than, than Governor Bredesen? As I said, it's been a change these last five years. The extremism is being seen by everyone across the state. We're building a broad, multiracial, multigenerational um, coalition to win this race. We're going to bring in independents, Democrats, and some Republicans who were fed up. When we saw the gun violence um, happen at Covenant School and the Republicans pretend they were going to do something, then refuse to do something, and absolutely betray the 80%, 80%, that means Republicans, Democrats, and independents in Tennessee who wanted to see common sense gun legislation. They betrayed those families by not even discussing violent, gun violence in the special session. And everyone knows that Marsha Blackburn is in the pocket of the NRA. And that's just the reality. And what I'm... I'm sorry. Yes. No, go ahead. I said, what we are seeing here, it's a multi-partisan coalition coming together. They worked all summer long. They went to see their representatives. They emailed. I talked to some of the covenant moms, emailed Marsha Blackburn multiple times and heard nothing back. So you think the she gun reforms and gun, gun, gun control is going to be a, a major issue in this race and it's going to help you beat Senator Blackburn? I think common sense gun legislation like uh, background checks, universal universal background checks and uh, safe storage and red flag laws are overwhelmingly supported by all parties and they are ignoring that. And so, yes, it will be an issue. People in Tennessee, they want someone who's going to work and fight for them to have lower prescription drugs, to cut costs for those in the middle class and working Tennesseans. It seems that Marsha Blackburn works for the wealthy and the well-connected and the special interests, yeah. not working for Tennessee families. She doesn't, they don't hear from her. In that horrible killing, um, the, the killer in the Covenant School, I, I, I believe the killer had a manifesto and there are news media outlets trying to get that released and law enforcement won't release it. Do you support releasing uh, the killer's manifesto? Uh, to my understanding, that's according to the covenant parents, that's absolutely not what is is not what's happening. I'm told that one of the senators, one of the Republican senators has a lawsuit. And so it is tied up right now. I know that there are members who have seen those writings. But the reality is we know how the event happened. We know how the shooter got the guns. We don't need that information to act and to take action. And you don't, you don't write new legislation for every mass shooting that happens. We've had shootings at restaurants, in churches, and we've got to keep the whole community safe. And we know based on data and research what works, but instead we've got a party held hostage by the NRA and the Tennessee Firearms Association. 
All right, Representative Gloria Johnson, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. And we did reach out to Senator Blackburn's office to see if she would like to join us as well. We have yet to hear a response, but we welcome her on the show. CNN senior data reporter uh, Harry Enton is here with me. And Harry, uh, the last time Senator Blackburn ran, uh, as, as I noted, um, yeah. Her Highness uh, Taylor Swift uh, came out against her. I'm not saying that lightly. I, 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 live, in a house, I live in a house of Swifties. Um, Taylor Swift came out against her. And even with Taylor Swift against her, Marsha Blackburn won. Uh, you heard what uh, Gloria Johnson says she can bring to this race. Uh, common sense gun reforms and her characterization will be a central to it. Um, I think it could be tough for her. What do you think? I, I think it will be very tough for her. I mean, the last Democrat to win a United States Senate race in the state of Tennessee was Al Gore back in 1990. That's 33 years ago. You mentioned Donald Trump easily won the state by over 20 percentage points. Uh, we had a governor's race back in 2022. Republican Bill Lee won by over 30 percentage points. You just put the math together. I have to be honest, the message that we just heard seemed better fit for a United States Senate race in New York rather than one in Tennessee. You don't mean that as an insult. You're, you're from New York. Yes, I'm from New York. I just want to make sure if anybody couldn't tell from your accent. Yes. Let's talk about another hot Senate race. Um, a former colleague of ours, former Republican Congressman uh, Mike Rogers of Michigan, announced that he is going to run for Senate. There's a, a retiring uh, Democratic senator in Michigan. Uh, what does that race look like? I mean, look, I think Michigan will sort of be a key test as to whether or not the Republican Party is actually going to nominate someone who has a chance of winning the general election. We saw in 2022, Michigan up and down the ballot, Republicans nominated election deniers. It didn't work out for them. I think it's going to be interesting to see on the Republican side whether there's a split in the moderate vote with Peter Meyer potentially also running. On the Democratic side, Alyssa Slotkin looks like the heavy favorite to win the Democratic nomination. Right. Mike Rogers is another sane Republican. Yes. The question is, can a sane Republican win the nomination? in that state. I don't know. Meyer and, and Rogers are both sane. Correct. Will that hurt them, he's saying that? Yeah, I'm saying that it could split the vote. There's, there's only so much of the vote in the Republican Party that actually believes the 2020 election was legitimate. Which it was. Which it was, obviously. Bigger picture, Democrats right now barely control the Senate. They, only, they have 51 seats, uh, including the independents who caucus with them, Angus King and Bernie Sanders. What does the battle look like in 2024? Look, Democrats control over 20 of the seats that are up for re-election. I think the key question is, can they hold on in states that Donald Trump won twice? States like Montana, states like West Virginia, uh, the states like Ohio, and that I think will ultimately determine it. They can't just win purple states, they have to win red states as well. Those are going to be tough. Sherrod Brown, Joe Manchin, and John Tester. Yeah. I don't know. You think all three of them can hold their seats? Probably not. Probably not. But look, I've learned in this era, never say never. All right. Wise words. Harry Enton, thank you so much. The new storm to watch, Hurricane Lee, gaining strength in warm Atlantic waters. Where is it heading? We'll tell you next. A few minutes ago, we called the tropical storm Lee. Now it's all grown up. Hurricane Lee. It's headed toward the eastern Caribbean. Meteorologist uh, Chad Myers is tracking this one. Chad, this could strengthen even quickly, even more quickly. Where is it headed? It is headed still to the middle of the Atlantic because that's where it is. This is going to take many days, maybe even two weeks to get really close to any land. Even at the end of these models, it's slowing down. But right now, a 75-mile-per-hour storm. And yes, it is cruising to the north of the Leeward Islands, to the north of Puerto Rico. And I've done something I'd never do here, but I've taken all the models. We do the spaghetti models all the time. I've put them under the cone so you can see how well the models are really reacting to the space out here. And I think that's where we're going to see 
now for the at least the next couple of days. This thing's in very warm water. It's going to intensify to a 150 mile per hour storm. But guess what's out here? That is the remnant water of Hurricane Franklin. A Category 4 hurricane we didn't talk much about because it was way out there in the Atlantic. But it wrecked the water. It cooled it off. So that may help us at least a little bit. Kind of slow this thing down before it eventually heads toward any landfall. Many of the models, and this is still 10 days away, start to turn this to the right and away from land. But Jake, this is still something you absolutely need to watch because this will be a Category 4 hurricane in the warm water before it gets to that cooler water. So there's a long way for this to go, and this could certainly be something to watch for the entire eastern seaboard, and for that matter, all the way up toward Nova Scotia. All right, Chad Myers, thanks so much. The climate crisis is causing the record warm ocean waters, fueling storms such as Hurricane Lee. It's also creating these blistering heat waves, and it comes as the world experienced the hottest summer on record. CNN's Bill Weir is following this story for us. Bill, help us understand the gravity of the data from the European Union's Copernicus Climate Change Service. Well, Jake, it's not just that we broke the record, it's we shattered it in in leaps. Usually you see these records broken by a hundredth of a degree. Uh, This uh, surpasses the last 30-year average by almost two-thirds of a full degree Celsius here. So it's the oceans have been hiding sort of our fossil fuel sins for a long time, absorbing 90% of the heat, where it wasn't obvious to us, of those of us who lived on land, but now it really, really is. And you've covered hurricanes, floods, wildfires, glaciers, melting in Greenland, uh, you name it. You've done a lot of it for yeah. our show covering this horrible climate crisis that's happening right before our eyes, maybe even more quickly and more expeditiously than you, than you even thought it was going to happen. Yeah. Um, how, how much has this intensified every time? It, it has intensified things. You know, the thing that, that I take away, especially from the Maui story, is we suffer from the lack of worst imagination. You right. know, we just we can't imagine a world in which something like these these events happen. And when they do, everybody is going through the sort of the five stages of grief at the same time. It's just startling. So the the clarion call to everyone is this may be the coolest summer we have for the rest of our lives, and we need to prepare accordingly. We, the tighter communities will suffer the least. We need to brace. Adaptation is part of this now. It's baked in. When you, say, you talk about the failure of imagination, which is a phrase that you and I remember from 9-11, it's like Maui is not a, an island that people worried about forest fires. Exactly, yeah. Um, or a hurricane hundreds of miles away, but all of a sudden you have this very dry summer, and this hurricane and the spark and yes. nobody even thinks about this. Exactly. No one's having the defensible spaces around their home in Maui the way you would in Paradise, California in the forest. But we have to think about uh, unimaginable uh, confluences of these disasters. There was news today. This, a lot of this, of course, is being driven by fossil fuel use, which seems to be going down. Not at all. I mean, the news will be, I've been doing so many of these stories about new records. The day I come out here and say Exxon or Saudi Aramco has announced that they're shutting down a project, that will be news. Right. Uh, but the Biden administration today did set aside about 10 million acres in Alaska on the North Slope. The Willow Project, which many activists on TikTok tried to fight, still going forward. But there's a little piece set aside from Georgia. Right, in Alaska that Trump had approved and the Biden people are now shutting down. Exactly. Won't make a huge difference in and of itself. Bill Ware, thanks so much. Dramatic developments today in the Trump legal cases from a first televised hearing to a former employee cooperating with the special counsel. Much more ahead with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He is in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.